And we are continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. And this week, we're going to look at singleness and marriage and the implications that Ephesians 5.31 gives. It might be helpful for you, if you have your Bible, to keep your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 7 because we will look at these three implications and, under, and look in more depth of the applications of these implications by looking at Paul's teaching on singleness and marriage found in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, Ephesians 5.31 says, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. So I have three if propositions and then three then applications we'll walk through this morning. You'll see on your outline those three propositions. First is that if the equal status of all the people of God is the same, married or single, then every member, especially non-married, must feel that they belong in community together. Second proposition, there's a danger to elevate the married status in the church above non-married status. And if we do this, we need to look at the barriers in our heart, the idols that fear and control bring to married and unmarried people that keep us from building this kind of community. And then if we're called in the gospel to live in community and encouragement, both single and married, then we need the gospel to grow our courage to live in trust in God and to seek others' good and not simply our own. That's where we're headed. And uh, this week... I've talked to a number of single members of our church. When we get to applications, I'll share some of those uh, with you. I reached out to Vanessa Hawkins, and she reached out to other singles involved in our church ministry. And then last week, Caitlin McNair, Chris Williams, and I, Chandler Holgate, Holgate met with our young adults, particularly talking to them about our new vision and values, commending the greatness of God in Jesus Christ to all peoples, single or married, in all generations, single and married. And we received some feedback from them as well. I'll be sharing that with you in the application. Now, it was Bob Dylan in the 60s that said, times they are a-changing, and as it relates to marriage and singleness in America, things have been changing. In 1950, 78% of all Americans were married and in the 2010 census, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that there are more Americans now, adult Americans that are non-married, than are married. And that number is only increasing in the age uh, bracket of 18 to 40. Only 36% of all Americans are married. And uh, as I mentioned, more and more Americans are non-married than married. The average age now is shifting for marriage. For men, it's 31, and women, it's 33. And though other um, alternatives to marriage are not helpful, it is true that cohabitation, single-person households, and single parenting is growing exponentially as well. And here Paul says that there's a mystery in the church that's 
must be understood single or married. And that mystery is that if you're united to Christ and you belong to Christ, you have all that you need to not only live a godly life, but to live in a fulfilled life. So let's look at these propositions. First, the equal status of all of God's family. Now, Paul has used this word mystery several times in the book of Ephesians. If we back up to Ephesians chapter 3, we're told that Paul says that every family, every family derives their name and their sense of origin from one blood. We all come from one family. We're all created by God. That is single or married. That is whatever status that you find yourself in. You all are part of the human race, single or married, same blood. But in Ephesians 2, he says that the human separations between ethnicity, the Jew and the Gentile, has been broken down because of we are one in the blood of Christ. And that's married and non-married, never married or non-married. We are all, all of us, reconciled as believers because of the blood of Christ. And then Ephesians 1, Paul says that the mystery is that God chose his beloved before the foundation of the world and set his affections on those that Christ came to save. Ephesians 1 said it was the very blood of Christ that has reconciled us to God. Now that's all of us, married, never married, or non-married. Paul says we all have equal status because of our union with Christ. Because we belong to Christ, therefore we have dignity. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he speaks specifically about the unmarried. Verse 8, it says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good that you remain single, that your status as single is not subpar in the church of Jesus Christ. In verse 17, he says, Let each person lead the life that has been assigned to them by God. Paul says that your status, married or single, or never married, or now non-married, is assigned to you by God. Verse 20 says, each of you should remain in the condition in which you were called. In verse 24, that each of you should remain with God. So Paul says that your status, even as single, is never alone. Think about that. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are always accompanied by the Holy Spirit, and you are to remain with God. Now, Paul is stressing that marriage does not make one complete. Each of us has an assignment, and he says the mystery is great, but whatever your status, we're taught here that because we belong to Christ, we have a dignified union with God. Now, you may read Ephesians 5, and we've been studying verses 21 through 33, and it's describing biblical marriage. You could read Ephesians 5 and assume that most of the people in Ephesus were married. But actually, that wasn't the case. In the early church, most of the church was widows and singles and orphans, and there were probably as many unmarried people as married. That would explain why Paul takes so much time to teach about Christian marriage, because in that pagan society, it was so foreign. 
Paul actually describes himself as non-married. And he says that he is to remain in this assignment that God has given him. Paul may have been married in all likelihood as a Pharisee. He probably was married before his conversion. And according to 1 Corinthians 7, there's an implication that probably his wife left him. He said, if an unbelieving spouse leaves, let them leave. It's not exactly sure, but Paul's status now as the apostle of Jesus Christ is that of a non-married. And he says that he is complete in serving Christ. You know, the early church, both the 12 apostles, the 70 and the 120, were made up high percentage of unmarried people. And it was true that in the early church, widows were not required to remarry because their status was seen as assigned and dignified before the Lord. Roman law would require a young widow to remarry, and the Jewish tradition was always that a family member would marry a young widow, but not in the church of Jesus Christ because singleness was given the same status as married. Paul stressing here that because you belong to Christ, you are married, you're united to Christ. Now, the church has struggled to model this, and all too often in the American church, if you're a single person, you feel like an outsider. You feel like you don't belong. You feel like that you're not welcome into the full fellowship of the family of God. Christopher Yuan, who's a professor at Moody Bible College and Rosaria Butterfield wrote an article in 2015 after the Supreme Court upheld the uh, legalization of uh, gay and lesbian unions. But one of the comments that they make in the article is that among all the failures of the Church of Jesus Christ, one chief, chief failure that we have to admit is that we haven't properly taught and properly celebrated singleness and the beauty of the gift of singleness in such a way that it's been a contributing factor to some of the confusion that has led to the society's misunderstanding about biblical marriage. I believe Paul is trying to stress to us that your singleness is not a curse, single, non-married person. It is a gift. It is a blessing. It is an assignment from God. And while it is true that in singleness we can make poor choices because of our loneliness, the Bible is clear that your status as a single person and as a member of the church of Jesus Christ is dignified. It's a gift given to you by God. Paige Benton wrote an article a few years ago called Singled Out by God for Good. And she says all too often in the church, Singles have to hear these kinds of things. As soon as you find yourself satisfied in God alone, he'll bring someone into your life, implying that God's blessings are dependent on your ability to earn contentment. Or you're just too picky, and God is frustrated with your fickleness until you begin to accept whomever God would bring your way. Or as a single you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work as if somehow singles and marrieds are not all called to the Lord's work. Or before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you into being someone wonderful. She talked about how demeaning that is for a single person. 
And all too often, the church has failed to dignify the call of singleness, and the church has failed to um, root out the idols of making marriage more important than our relationship with God. Now, Paul stresses this here. He says that the problem is that even in the church, we've made an idol out of marriage. And he stresses this not only by saying that there's equal status, but he says in verses 18 through 24 that the church can make an idol out of marriage. And as a non-married person, you can elevate marriage to a point where you feel incomplete or shamed or guilty because you're not married. Or as a married person, you have to admit that a lot of your unhappiness is tied to the fact that you expected that marriage or your spouse exists to make you content when only God can meet our deepest needs. Look again what Paul says in verse 17. Singleness is a gift. It's assigned by the Lord. But verse 36 says that our status, we're single or married, is given to us to benefit our sanctification. Do you think of your life as a married person primarily not to find happiness and joy in your marriage, but primarily God has given you a spouse for your sanctification? And single person, do you see that from the Lord your gift or assignment as a single person is for your own sanctification? Because it's true, your spouse will always disappoint you and other people can never meet the need that only Christ can meet. But marriage is given to us as a benefit for our sanctification. In verse 31, it's interesting the play on words Paul uses. He says that we would all experience singleness of mindset in our devotion to Christ. We would all understand that we're single-minded in our devotion to Christ and not distracted. And marriage is to promote that sense of contentment in the Lord. I was discipling a young believer. He was in his early 30s several years ago, and he came to me and he said, I'm very fearful. And he said, I'm fearful that I'm missing God's will as, as it relates to marriage. And uh, he said, I just can't, dis I can't figure out what God wants me to do in relation to marriage. And I said, well, I know what God's will is for your life in relation to marriage. He said, you do? Would you share it with me? I said, sure, I'll share it with you. Are you ready for this? And he said, sure. I said, well, it's God's will for you to be single. And he said, how do you know that? And I said, because you're single. And if God brings a woman in your life and she uh, loves the Lord and you marry in the Lord, it'll be God's will for you to be married. He said, I've never thought about it. I always thought that it was my job to figure this thing out. And it really does illustrate the problem in our lives. We tend to live situationally, not living sovereignly under God's control. We have to believe not only our status, married or single, is assigned by the Lord, but all that we face in this life goes through the hands of a sovereign Lord who's entrusted us with whatever circumstances we find ourselves. I'll ask you this morning, are you living situationally? Are you living sovereignly under God's control and trusting Him that if 
he's placed things in your life that those things are for your sanctification. I think that many of us need to read Matthew 6.33 every morning. Seek first the kingdom of God. Do not be anxious what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear. Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, when I was a new believer, I met a woman, Sandra and I met a woman in our church, and uh, she was not married. She was, um, had been married for one year, and her husband had died in an accident, and she'd never remarried. And I asked her that question once. I said, why have you never remarried? And she said, I've never felt incomplete. And even having been married just for a short period of time, I felt that that was the Lord's will for me. I also felt that I was able to meet people, particularly those that find themselves single, and to give them hope in the Lord. She was a very powerful witness to me of what it means to be content in Christ. You know, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the missionary movement around the world was expanded exponentially, primarily by single female missionaries. They weren't the only missionaries on the field, but Amy Carmichael in India and the Donover Fellowship were all single women. Gladys Allward, Lottie Moon, Isabel Kuhn expanded the ministry in China. Our own church supported Mary Beam and Betty Cridlin and Helen Rosevere, who advanced the mission of Christ throughout Africa. I asked Peter Letchford once, why do women have such effective missions ministries around the world? He said, I think that women uh, that come from the United States were not as threatening uh, to a, a different culture and a different people group, and they were welcomed into the community. And those women lived as if Jesus really was their content, uh, filled their contentment. And we have to know that many of the great leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ were single. Augustine, probably the most profound theologian besides Paul, was single in addition to Paul. John Stott, who probably as a modern theologian is the, the theologian that I read the most, was single. And yes, Jesus, the perfect human, lived a single life. Non-married person, if Jesus did not need to be married to be complete in his relationship with God, you need to know that you are complete and you can trust God. Well, how do we trust God? How do we live with this sense of completeness? The text in 1 Corinthians 7 speaks of maintaining an eternal perspective. And when you maintain an eternal perspective, you're able to have the courage to trust God no matter what you face. Now, where do we see this? Look in several of these verses. Verse 26 says, In view of this present distress, it is good to remain as you are. The present distress if you're an underliner, underline that. Verse 29, this time appointed is short, and from now on let us who have wives live as though we had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as those 
who are not, and those who buy food as if those who have no goods. What is Paul dealing with here? He says the present world in this form is passing away, and I want you to be free from concern. And then verse 35, I seek not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure single-minded devotion to the Lord. Paul is saying that an eternal perspective is how we live courageously. And we have to think about our lives not situationally in the moment. I use this illustration often when I explain eternal perspective, and I stopped using it uh, probably because I thought at times it might promote an escapist mindset. But I think this is what the apostle's trying to get at when he says... The time is short. He's saying that when Jesus came, Jesus brought the new age. And the new age of the kingdom of God has broken in. You recall Jesus often said the kingdom of God is near. The new age has broken in. And we're going to the age to come. And Paul says here, this time, no matter how long we live, is a very short time compared to eternity. Now here's the illustration. You can just imagine a line that went as far to the east as it did to the west. An infinite line that just went on and on and on. You know, north and south, if you start traveling north and south, eventually you go north, you'll eventually come south. But east and west, those lines never meet. And uh, just imagine that's eternity, this eternal line from east to west that never ends. Now think of your life. Your life is like a dot on that eternal line. And what Paul is saying is that part of how we live courageously and part of how we trust God is we recognize where we're headed. We're headed to eternity. And this life will only be a brief moment. James says our life is like a vapor. And he says that eternally when we see the Savior, he will greet us with a feast. It'll be a wedding feast, and our Savior will spread that feast, and for eternity, we will worship and fellowship with the lover of our soul. You know, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus has asked this question. He says, when we get to heaven in the age to come, will we be married? Will we be single? And Jesus said this, the sons of this age marry and are given to marriage now, but in the age to come, in the resurrection, neither will they marry nor will they be given in marriage. You see, whatever status you find yourself in now, it's but a short moment. It's but a brief time. And the courage to live and to trust God comes from the fact that he has secured our eternity. Think about chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians where Jesus is described as coming to earth. In his riches, in his fullness of relationship with God, it says that he left. He came to the earth alone. And it says he took on poverty compared to riches. And it says, consider the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He impoverished himself in separation from the Father's love so that we might eternally live in the rich fellowship of relationship to him. Now just two more verses that, or two more references that relate to eternal perspective. First, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Paul is talking about suffering and how do we deal with suffering. And he says, this momentary 
light affliction. Now, Paul's been beaten. He's been left for dead. And this is how he describes it. This momentary light affliction is working in me an eternal weight of glory as we look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. For that which is seen is temporary, but that which is unseen is eternal. Paul is saying that I deal with my suffering out of an eternal perspective, that it's momentary, it's light, because God is working in me, this eternal glory. And then Colossians 3, 1 through 5, it says, If then you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ with God. And then, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we will be revealed with him in glory. Now, notice single person, Colossians 3 doesn't say, when marriage, which is our life, comes to us, we, then we can live fulfilled. It says Christ is our life, not marriage, not our single status. Christ is our life. Well, I mentioned that at the end of this sermon, we will ask the question, how have we been doing as a church? I uh, talked to several members of our congregation that are single. We took a survey from those uh, young adults that attended our gathering last week, and Vanessa Hawkins spoke and surveyed some. And let's just try to apply these three things and ask, how are we doing? First, this idea that every member, especially non-married, need to feel that they're welcomed, understood, appreciated, and connected. These were some of the responses that the non-married people said. I need to be reminded by families that I'm not waiting to be a real adult till I get married. I'm not asked to, uh, I'm not going to be asked to be a leader only when I'm married, but that I can be a part of the fellowship here. Another said, I struggle to know how to build intergenerational relationships, and I think that the present age and stage Sunday school classes have made it harder for me. I wish I had a few families that would invite me to be a part of their lives. I don't know how to break in and build relationships with families. Another said, I wish more sermon applications were made to non-married people and not just teenagers. So in answer to that, we'll apply this one for sure. Non-married need to be reminded that their struggles with sexual temptations like pornography, cohabitating, and sleeping around are just as destructive to them, not just to teenagers. What about the second aim, that each of us would look at the barriers in our heart and see where fear and control and idols have kept us from loving others in community. One said, I need to be reminded that I am serving for Christ's glory and not simply for someone to notice me and be, that I might be worthy of being chosen as a spouse. I need married people to remind me that my purpose is to glorify Christ. And then another said, I need help knowing how to connect because I often feel like I'm only bothering families and intruding in their lives. Let me just speak as a pastor to you if you're a non-married person. I do believe that we failed in many ways to make you uh, experience the dignity that 
you deserve as a member of the body of Christ. Please forgive me as your pastor and know that we're committed not only by preaching on this, but we're committed to growing our family, married and non-married. Well, the gospel gives us the courage to trust God. And um, I'll close with this. I saw on Pinterest this week a video of Helen Roosevelt. Now, I've never been on Pinterest before, but it came up uh, on, a, on a search for Helen Roosevelt. There's a seven-minute video. I never know that Pinterest had videos either, but a seven-minute video in Helen Roosevelt, who's a missionary in Africa. This church has had her speak here several times, and uh, she went to She's from Oxford in England, and she came to faith there. But they interviewed her, and they asked her, why did she never marry? And it's a little seven-minute video. I'd encourage you. It's so delightful to listen to her share. But she says, I fell in love with Jesus when he saved me. And I never felt that I ever needed any more love than the love that he gave me. She said, at times I wondered what it would be like to be married. Sometimes maybe I needed to move a sofa or a chair was broken. I thought it'd be really great to have a man around to uh, fix something that I couldn't fix. But she said that Jesus' love has always been enough for me. It makes me complete. That's what Paul says when he says, this profound mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ and his love for the church. I pray that you know that profound mystery. The lover of your soul will meet your every need. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Jesus, lover of our soul, for your patience as a groom when we neglect you, when we dismiss your love as something small, when we make this life the end-all and the be-all. Lord, we want to live in the eternal perspective that forever we will be with you and your love will not just be a cup. Your love will be an ocean that will fill our hearts. Help us, dear Jesus, to love each other that way. Also help us especially to love non-married people and to welcome them into the fellowship and the leadership of this church. And Father, we know that the number of people that are non-married is growing in this culture. Make us effective at reaching non-married people for the sake of the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.